I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Hello. Welcome to Once Upon a Gene. I'm your host, Effie Parks. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to be here with me for a little while. You know, the show just celebrated uh, three years on Halloween a few days ago in 2022. Thank you all for supporting this show and for sharing it with your friends, for reviewing it. I hope that it's been a companion in the dark, and I hope that it has ignited something in you. Thank you to all of the courageous souls who I've had the honor of having as a guest on here, and an extra special shout out to those heavy lifters in the background, London, John, Erica, and Devana, who always have my back. It's an interesting topic today. The system, specifically the social security, Medicare, Medicaid system. My guest today has a master's in economics and a law degree. And after working for SSA for more than 10 years, he wanted to help demystify the complicated disability system. His first book, Social Security Disability Revealed, Why It's So Hard to Access Benefits and What You Can Do About It, explores the obstacles that disability claimants face as they try to access benefits. This is a jam-packed episode with really important information, no matter where you are in this journey for services, for yourself or for your child. So please enjoy my conversation with Spencer Bishens. Hi, Spencer. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I've given our listeners a little brief intro to you, um, but please tell us more about you, your career, and why you wrote this book called Social Security Disability Revealed. Sure. Well, I left law school and passed the bar in 2008, and that was a pretty challenging time to be entering the workforce anywhere in the United States, and the legal field was no exception. We were living in Washington, D.C. at the time, and I was applying to every government agency I could find, but there was just not a lot of hiring going on um, until the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act fully kicked in, and then all the agencies started hiring. And uh, I went with the first one that sent me an offer letter, and that happened to be Social Security. So when people ask me how I ended up with Social Security, the answer is pretty much just by accident. Uh, but then I stayed for almost 11 years, starting at the Appeals Council, where I was reviewing cases that had already been decided and they were on appeal. And then I went to the hearing level, and I was there seven years, where I wrote almost 2,000 decisions, both favorable and unfavorable for a variety of administrative law judges. Lots of different backgrounds, lots of different personalities, and those judges were located all over the country, so lots of different uh, locations as well. Interesting. I wonder when you go into something completely different than what you had planned, and perhaps you didn't have any special training in law school for it, what sort of instruction was set up for you to be able to look at people's medical records and decide on their futures and if they qualified? Like, was there something in place in the government system that helped educate you as an appeal attorney to make those decisions? Yeah, we actually had a really good training program. I was in a class of about 100 people who were all starting at the same time. And a lot of those people were right out of law school. I, I was two years out of law school, and there were some people who had been out of law school longer than me, but then there were some people who had literally just graduated two months before and hadn't even gotten their bar results yet when we started. So it was a large training class, and we had a large group of trainers and a very regimented training course and schedule. And so it was very well done. 
it was a six week training. And like you said, we learned how social security makes decisions and we learned how to look at different kinds of medical records. But then the training didn't end there. The entire first year was really like one long on the job training course where we were not given production requirements. We were allowed to ask lots of questions. We were allowed to look things up. So it, it, I, I do think the way that social security trained me was very good. Now I have heard from other people within social security, it's not so good for a lot of people. It's a four or six week course. And then you're thrown right into the mix of, okay, now review these thousand pages and write a decision in the next eight hours. Well, that does make me feel a little better because I know just in like the world of insurance, the people who are denying and looking at our appeals are not even usually people for the first round or two. So <laughs> that, that makes me happy. What were some of the things that surprised you as you began this job and looking over these appeals, shook you, perturbed you? What are some of the things you learned kind of right off the bat? Yeah, well, the problem with Social Security is while they should be focused on treating every claimant like a human, like a person, like a family with a story, medical problems and other problems in life and trying to understand why that person can't work if it's an adult or why that child's functioning is somewhat limited if it's a child. Unfortunately, sometimes social security behaves more like a private insurance company. And sometimes it can even feel like a computer is making the decisions, like it's a bot deciding your case. And part of the reason is social security's rules can be really strict. Part of the reason is that Social Security focuses a lot on how many cases they're paying. Over a million people a year file for Social Security disability benefits. And to those people, they only care about one specific case. So they see themselves as a person and as an individual. But Social Security management, they see a lot of numbers, right? They see a lot of statistics. How many cases are we paying? How many are we denying? How many are we paying at the initial level? Oh, it looks like we're paying too many. The trust fund's being depleted. Let's try and pay fewer. And so even though the individual person has their own situation and their own story and they want to be seen and treated like an individual, unfortunately, there are just so many individual stories that the government oftentimes ends up treating you like a statistic and making it seem really impersonal. And that can be really frustrating for people. And, and that's one of the things I talk about in the book, right? Because the whole point of my book is I want people to understand how this process works for one, so that you know what's going on. Two, so you are a little bit less frustrated when the expected happens. But more importantly, three, so you understand what's going on and know then how to deal with that situation moving forward. Oof, that's such a powerful, hard heartbreaking truth that patients become a number, but their story is real to them. You know, it makes people feel like giving up, right? And it makes them feel gaslighted, like they have been, you know, over the course of the entire time they've been in the medical system in general. And it's just another barrier. And the important thing to remember, and I try and emphasize this throughout the book, is that's not an accident. It's not like the system was originally designed a certain way and, and it's devolved. The system is very much set up to be everything that you just said, to be barriers, to gaslight you, to make you feel like, oh, this is just a neutral government agency that's going to look at your medical records and give you a fair and impartial evaluation. But that's not at all what happens. The social security system was originally set up to have people pay in for you know 40 years and get benefits for four years at retirement, right? Between 65 and 69, which I think was originally the average lifespan. So it was never set up for people to be paying in for much less time, becoming disabled and collecting benefits for a longer period of time. So when the social security system included this disability system, they promised everyone, everyone pay into the system. It's You have to, right? It's required. It's a tax. Pay into the system and we will be there for you if and when you need disability benefits. But then 
over a million people need disability benefits every year. It's not long ago, it was 2 million. Well, Social Security just financially can't pay all those claims. And when we step back and we think about the system as a whole, we understand that it's not going to be solvent if we pay every single claim that people file. Even though all of those people have medical records and medical opinions, and they all need those benefits, and they all feel like they should get them, the problem is Social Security has made a promise that it can't fulfill because it can't possibly pay all those claims. And so that's where we get into how do we decide who to pay and who not to pay. And the first thing Social Security does is it tries attrition. It tries to get as many people to self-select out of that system as possible by denying most claims and then seeing who appeals and gaslighting you and making you frustrated and making you want to give up. And the more people who self-select their way out of the system by giving up, by not appealing, by not moving forward, the fewer cases Social Security has, say, at the hearing level when you go in front of an actual Social Security judge. And so when they say something like, oh, well, we're paying, those judges pay half of those cases. Well, that's half of a, a reduced amount of, of people, right? So when you talk about this system gaslighting you and, and putting up barriers and making you feel awful, the system is designed that way, not like a private insurance company is for profit per se, but it certainly acts like and operates in the same way as a private insurance company. Kind of like the mafia. It sounds like that to me. The discriminatory aspects of it, I think about those adult patients, right, who are living with whatever disability they have. And then I think about the next layer that maybe they don't speak English and they're another marginalized minority aside from being disabled. And then they also can't work, so they're broke, and maybe they don't have the internet, and they can't follow up on these emails that are sent to secret portals. And then it just gets more difficult, more difficult, more difficult. Yeah. And there's a lot more groups, uh, women, people of color, people who live in rural areas, both because the internet might not be great, there might not be a social security office in their town, but also they may have limited access to medical care. You know, maybe the only doctor in your town of 3,000 people is a family physician. Maybe you don't have an orthopedist or an MRI center or a place where you can get fancy blood testing, you know, for genetic conditions. So yeah, there's a lot of barriers in this country, obviously, before you get to the point where you have some kind of medical situation and can't work. And then piled on, like you said, piled on top of all of that is the problem of you can't work, so you lose your health insurance because I think still over 80% of people in the United States get their health insurance from work. So when you become unable to work, you become unable to seek affordable medical care. Not that it's affordable with insurance, but without insurance, it's darn near impossible, right? But Social Security knows that. It's not like Social Security is blind to our system. The social security system and the government as a whole understands that most people get their health insurance from work. So they understand that if you're unable to work and seeking disability benefits, you're not going to be able to get the treatment you need, which means you're not going to have great documentation. That's one of the ways, that's the tool that they use at the initial level to deny the vast majority of cases. They know that those medical records are going to be spotty, incomplete, inconsistent, have gaps. Social Security understands that if 100 cases are filed, 70 to 80 cases are going to have medical records that are kind of a disaster. So they know it's not actually going to be that difficult for them to deny those cases initially. The way our healthcare system is set up which is partially, I mean, mostly really the fault of the government, right? It's Congress could implement a single payer system or, or expand healthcare coverage and they're not doing that. So they're intentionally setting up our healthcare system in a way that's handing social security a very easy set of denials and making it really easy for them to deny those cases. Yeah. 
whether it be adults or children. Yeah, it's nauseating, actually. Hopefully the Free the Data Act from a few days ago on October 6th will help eventually poke some or put some putty in some of these holes, but who knows? So let's actually kind of break this down. Can you explain the difference between SSI and SSDI? There's both adults who listen to this show, but a vast majority are parents who are raising kids with rare genetic disorders. So they're in charge of the stuff before they turn 18. So can you go ahead and demystify what both of those are? Sure. And I cover this in more detail in part one of the book. There are two social security disability programs. Anyone who works and is an employee and gets a paycheck from an employer also gets a pay stub every two weeks usually. And on that pay stub, if you look at it, and most people never look at it, but if you look at it, you should see three federal taxes coming out of your paycheck. First one is income tax. That's what we're all familiar with. But then there's these things, these two other things called payroll taxes. And one of them is a social security tax and one of them is a Medicare tax. The social security tax, most of us know that goes to fund the retirement program. I work long enough and at 67, I can get retirement. But that social security tax also, that same tax also funds the SSDI program, also called the Title II program or Social Security Disability Insurance. This is a program that is only for adults, so you have to be at least 18. And this is what people usually think of when they think of disability benefits. Because for most people in the United States, if they're working, they're earning credits, they're paying into the system. In most cases, if they become disabled, they're going to file a Social Security disability insurance claim. But adults can also, if they don't have enough credits, if they're a stay-at-home parent, if they haven't worked in a while or they're a recent immigrant, for whatever reason, they can't get those SSDI benefits. There's the SSI program, Supplemental Security Income or Title 16. And those benefits are there if you don't qualify for the Title II program, but they're a lot more restrictive. They're also just lower. I think the maximum payout on SSI is like 800 bucks a month this year. But there's all kinds of offsets, like if you earn if you try and work a little bit part-time like that'll offset your ssi benefits so there's kind of a disincentive there to work but also there's asset and income limitations so if you have more than a couple thousand bucks or you earn not very much money you might not qualify for that program at all and for children that is under the age of 18 because as we're taught in training Kids don't work. That's the three word phrase they tell us never forget. Kids don't work. And so that's why children can't get the Title II benefits, but they can get SSI. So if you're a parent, if you have a child under the age of 18 and you file a Social Security disability claim, it will only be SSI or Title 16. But remember, that means that the agency is going to look at your assets and your income. And if you as the parent have assets or income that's too high, you're not going to qualify for SSI, even if you have a disabled child. Now let's talk about what a disabled child is. The adult definition of disability is, do you have medical impairments that prevent you from working for a period of 12 continuous months? Well, because kids don't work, we have to have a different definition of disability. And the way Social Security decides whether a child is disabled is by asking, is their functioning substantially different from the functioning of an unimpaired child? So do you have impairments that cause a marked degree of difference in functioning compared to an unimpaired child? And there are social security rulings from 2009, and you can find these by Googling SSR 09-2P, and then I think they go all the way up to dash 8P. And those are the standards of functioning that the agency uses to describe an unimpaired child. In other words, at various ages throughout development, Here's what we expect to see from an unimpaired child. And so we can use those standards to decide if 
the claimant has a substantial degree of impairment because of their medical conditions. So I know from experience that the system here in Washington state, at least, purposely loses paperwork. And they also make the paperwork that you have to fill out over and over and over and over again, intentionally confusing. So for example, the paperwork that you have to fill out so detailed, ask questions in terms of you as an adult, you as a patient. There isn't any kind of specific places for pediatrics where it's like, we know the kid doesn't work. Like you said, kids don't work. It always asks like, how much are you making? How much money do you have here? What do you own? And so you fill it out that way, but then they say, oh, this isn't about you. This is about your kid. Yeah. And social security isn't that different in the sense that there's lots of paperwork, lots of functioning forms. You fill them out, you send them in. Somehow they never get where they're supposed to go. But Social Security does have functional forms for children. So I'm surprised that the state hasn't like just developed its own form for children. But I'm guessing what you're going to say is when you then fill that out for the child, they go, oh, you didn't explain how your two-year-old is working. <laughs> totally. It's almost you have to laugh or you'll cry more, right? Which is another reason that you end up quitting because it's just too much, especially when in the end you realize that it's almost really no help at all. Well, so I worked in a social security hearing office in Washington state. And since I'm coming at this from a completely different perspective, I have a different experience with, with the state of Washington in that after people fill out the forms and go to the appointments, et cetera, and then they gather all those records, that's the point in where I would see their medical records. So of course, I'm not seeing the people who gave up or who couldn't fill out the forms. I would not see those because those people were not even able to get through the state system, let alone get through two levels of a social security claim, right? So my experience in the limited sample size that I saw from people who were able to get through that gauntlet within the state of Washington is that I would actually see some pretty detailed medical records from Washington's Department of Health and and the social security the social security judges that I worked for actually really didn't like the records they would get from DSHS because they would tend to so strongly suggest the person was disabled after you see the same psychologist marking off, you know, marked, 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 marked extreme for limitations so many times, the judges would just like basically stop believing that source. Yeah, every single person you're saying is marked or extreme limitations. And I just at some point, I just can't believe you. So our perspective at the hearing office was just different because we were seeing, it looked to us like DSHS was just saying everyone's disabled. But of course, I see what you're saying because those are only the people who made it through the system. That could be 20 out of 100 or 10 out of 100 people. That's so funny. I do want to talk about adults, right, in the matter of caregivers. So most of us who end up having children who are severely medically complex end up having to quit our jobs. At least one parent has to stop working right? Uh, because you can't find people qualified to take care of your kids, nor can you afford it. And it's super specialized. Yeah. What things are in place for caregivers in the forms of government, social security or anything like that, who do have to become a full-time caregiver to their child? Well, I'm sure there are other programs that I have no expertise on, like maybe the CHIP program or snap or wick or maybe even school lunch even for homeschool children i think in the last couple of years the school lunch program has expanded so there might be other programs but i'm not an authority on that and i don't want to give your listeners bad information so i'll just stick to social security so the thing that parents should remember is social security disability asks whether you have met for adults whether you have medical impairments that prevent you from being able to do full-time work for a full 12 continuous months. It doesn't actually ask whether you want to be working and tend to be working. It's just whether you're able to work. So like some stay-at-home parents, maybe they did work and they're not anymore. Well, they may have worked long enough to earn social security credits and they may have SSDI coverage. And even though they don't wanna work, if you've got a medical condition that 
would prevent you from doing full-time work, you could still file a social security disability claim. And if we're talking genetic conditions, then it's very much the case that the parent might have the same condition that the child has. And remember for the parents, you've paid into the system. There is no problem with you filing a disability claim. It's called an entitlement because you've paid in and you are entitled to receive those benefits if you medically qualify. So the first thing I would say is to the parents, think about your own medical situation. Look at your own medical records and maybe go talk to a social security disability representative. They don't charge you for an initial consultation and they only get paid if you get a favorable decision and they only get paid a limited amount. So it's worth looking into and thinking about, hey, maybe I should file a claim for myself. You never know, you just might get approved and that would be a substantial help. And also if you're approved for SSDI, you can get access to Medicare. And if you don't have health insurance because you're not working, then it might be really useful to be part of the Medicare program for the parent. And of course, any of that money coming in or that Medicare coverage helps the family budget and could help for you know your, your whole situation, your housing, your food, the extra medical care for the children. So, but there is another program that we should definitely get to. It's part of the Title II program. So it is an SSDI benefit. But now I want your listeners to think about the child, not the parent. Now I said earlier, kids don't work. They can't get SSDI benefits. But there is an exception. There's a lot of exceptions with Social Security. And I go through those in the book, right? Every time I say, here's the general rule. Here's how that works. I explain it. I give an example. But now here are the exceptions. And this is one of those exceptions that... I think would really apply to your audience. As the child gets near age 18, let's say they are approved for SSI. Well, when the child turns 18, they're not a child anymore under the law. So if they're receiving SSI, the social security program is going to send you a pretty sternly worded letter saying your child, I think it actually happens after they turn 18. Your child has now turned 18. They're no longer a child. We're going to conduct a reevaluation of this case under the adult rules. And now they're going to ask, instead of functioning, instead of functioning compared to other children, they're now going to say, we're now going to decide whether your child can work. And maybe your child has, of course, never worked. Doesn't matter. They're going to ask, can your child do a full-time job in the national economy? And in a lot of situations, the answer turns out to be yes, and they cut off those benefits. And I saw a lot of those cases where the parents were appealing, saying, you can't cut off my benefits. My kid can't work. What are you, nuts? And you then have to prove why your kid can't work. And that's just to keep SSI benefits, which as we already talked about, it's a really unstable program and those benefits don't amount to much. Well, there is a way once your kid turns 18 and is legally no longer a kid, for them to actually claim your SSDI benefits as the parent or guardian. In other words, if you've worked and earned those benefits, the chi your child who is now 18 can actually put a claim in on your earnings record and leave it to the government to label it this, but it's called a disabled adult child claim or a DAC claim, D-A-C. What is an adult child? Well, it's an adult that was a child. In other words, the person's now an adult, but their impairment started when they were a child. And that's even a really not a good title because the rule is that the impairment has to have onset before age 22. So yeah, the government is not great at naming things, right? So, but if, if, they, if the person has an impairment that onset before age 22, and then they have to be found disabled under the adult standard, which is they can't do full-time work in the national economy. But if you can get over that hump, if you can get past those barriers and they can get your SSDI benefits, which don't count against you in any way as the parent, by the way, it's just that the amount that they would get would be based on your earnings record as the parent. It's a claim on your record before your child. 
Well, that's a Title II claim. And there's so many different thing, reasons that that's better than SSI. The amount might be is like double the monthly amount. They could get Medicare coverage. They could go back to, they could start working, you know, a part-time job while also getting benefits and there's no offset. So it's really important to know about this program and to understand how this program works because it's a much, much better program than SSI. But one last element that I haven't mentioned yet of this is that the, the wage earner has to be either dead, retired, or disabled. In other words, they have to be in some way a social security recipient themselves. And if you're not planning on dying anytime soon and you're too young for retirement, which is probably the case for many of your listeners, well, that's another good reason to start looking into should I as the parent apply for disability for me? Because if you're then found disabled as the parent, then the child, when they turn 18, could also put a claim in on your earnings record. And now, instead of maybe being completely excluded from SSI because of your assets or income, maybe you as the parent and the child, once they turn 18, can both be SSDI claimants. And there's no asset and earnings test for SSDI. Jeff Bezos pays into the SSDI program. Elon Musk pays in. They could go file an SSDI claim if they, they're not going to. But point is that there's no asset and income limitation. So there are a lot of really good financial reasons to understand how all of these programs work and to understand all your different options between the two programs because you know, it can really make a difference between the parent and the child if you're talking an extra thousand bucks a month per person going in out into the future. I mean, we're talking tens of thousands of dollars. So it really does pay literally to understand how these programs work. Wow, that's all. That's so convoluted and extremely interesting. Thanks for explaining the DAT claim, especially the part how it doesn't necessarily sacrifice your future in the system either. And it works in the same way that if you've been married over 10 years, your spouse, whether or not they're a current spouse or a former spouse, if you've been married over 10 years, when you get to retirement, that spouse can base their retirement amount on your earnings. And it doesn't impact you in any way. It's just about calculating the amount that they get. And it's kind of the same thing. If that 18 year to 18 to 22 year old is now applying for a, a DAC claim on your earnings record. Well, it's just about calculating the amount. It doesn't impact the parent's ability to also get disability or retirement benefits. It's just when we ask, well, how much would that 18 to 22 year olds get as part of their claim, we calculate that based on the parent's earning. Mm. So that's one way to maybe like help prep. Are there any other ways that parents of kids who are about to turn 18, how can they prepare or ease some of the inevitable pain of the system that's going to continue? Are there anything they can implement to sort of make this a little less treacherous? I mean, it's a shameless plug, but the thing is the inf there's a lot of information in my book about all the different things that you need to know about the social security programs and how they work. And there, the thing is, there are things that can sneak up on you. And if something sneaks up on you and somehow you accidentally get paid too much money, you're going to then end up owing the social security administration money. And that's like the worst possible position, right? You went to social security asking for help and you end up where you owe them money back. And the one of the examples I give in the book of where this this can impact you is once the child turns 18, they're now an adult, right? And as far as the law is concerned, they're on their own. But let's say they're still living with you. I mean, you're their parent, they're unable, maybe they're unable to work, they can't live on their own. You just think like, oh, of course, I'm not going to kick them out at 18, except that the Social Security Administration kind of expects you to do that. And so let's say they're receiving SSI. And I talked earlier about how the SSI has lots of offsets, right? Well, one of those offsets can be free rent. So if you're an SSI recipient, but you're staying with someone else, the Social Security can say, well, that person is effectively giving you free rent. We're going to deduct the value of that rent 
from your SSI benefit. And so even if you're living with your parents, which again, for most of us is just logical, right? But you don't wanna be caught in the situation where social security says, oh, you're living with your parents, we're gonna call that free rent and deduct that from your SSI. And you know, there's another offset here. And oh, you're working a part-time job, we're gonna deduct that. Sorry, actually, we've been paying you benefits for the last six months that we shouldn't have been. You now owe us $10,000. We expect payment within 30 days, right? You, you, you want to avoid these situations. And there's just too much for us to talk about, you know, in a one hour podcast. So it really is about and, and your listeners know this, right? Their whole all, your whole world is about educating yourself on the medical community, on genetic testing, on physical therapy, what's the latest care course of care for a particular impairment at the state level, like we talked about, how can I work with my state's department of health to get whatever services are there? This sort of thing, of course, isn't new to your listeners, but it's definitely like takes time. It drains your energy. It's just like more paperwork and more hassle then you want to have to deal with. But unfortunately, that's how our public benefit system is in the United States, right? We don't have a universal basic income where the government just hands you a thousand bucks every month and says, use this for whatever you need it for. You know better than we do. That's not how it works. I talk about that in, in the last chapter of the book, about why that's a better system. But that's not the system we have. The system we have, you have to go ask the government for every last penny of services and resources and you have to prove why you need it and it's demeaning it's demoralizing it's inhumane but it's the system we have so you have to know where all of the traps are as you talked about with at the state level but then as i have now introduced to your audience and a lot of your audience probably already knew this if they've applied for social security, that there are a lot of traps at the, at the federal level as well. One more uh, that I'd like to address if that's okay, just cause I, I don't want to forget to mention it. And that is, we talked, I just mentioned how you could accidentally be paid too much money by social security. Um, the other way that that happens is if you start working and that could be for even for a child like 16 and 17 year olds work right or an adult you start working and you think you assume like oh social security well, of course they'll find out about this right like uh, i'm an employee i'm paying the social security tax my employer is keeping records social Sec of course social security will find out where well, there's a huge lag on earnings as far as when they get to the irs and then when they get from the IRS to Social Security. And sometimes that can be like two years. And so some people, they think like, oh, I'm allowed to go and do some part-time work. I'll go ahead and do that. But if you don't keep Social Security really well informed, you can get in a huge heap of trouble because you can be accidentally paid too much for like two years or more. And that's when people get a letter saying, you owe us $50,000. And of course, that, that's when people feel like they're really, really trapped. So education, knowing where those traps are, knowing how the programs work, knowing when you can be paid, but also knowing when maybe you should not be paid benefits and knowing what to do in that situation is really important. Oh my gosh, so many facts, facts. <laughs> the whole time I was like really actually imagining my my mafia slash government assistance movie happening in my head. It all makes sense. It can feel that way <laughs> when you get that letter saying, you got overpaid too much, sorry. And the thing is, not only will they send you that letter, but they'll throw salt in the wounds by saying, you failed to tell us you went back to work we find that you were at fault in causing this massive overpayment. And you're thinking like, how am I at fault? All I'm doing is trying to go back to work and pay into the system. Like that's all anyone tells me is you should work. You should try and not need government benefits. I'm just trying to do my best to survive. But the letter will literally say you are at fault in causing that overpayment. 
And there is a way to deal with that. And they talk in the book about how you can deal with overpayments and what it means to be at fault and how you can appeal that sort of a thing. But yeah, you have to pay attention and you have to know how to appeal or when to appeal because you only get a limited amount of time, 60 days to appeal. So if you're denied, you can't like say, I just, I need a few months to think about it and then I'll appeal. You get a very limited amount of time. You need to act quickly and you need to know what you're doing at that point. That's not the time to, I guess, you know, you can buy the book at that point and read it. But again, 60 days is not a lot of time in life, right? And also, I just want to make sure your listeners understand if you have parents who are listening, who are beneficiaries, who applied, got approved, and they're currently collecting social security, whether it's that for them or the child, I guess this is probably more if, if you have a parent collecting, you are allowed to work some and receive benefits, but there's a very limited amount. And it's super easy to exceed that. We talked about that. But the other thing is, let's say you're not working. You decide, I'm not going to take that chance. I'm not going to work. Well, whether it's the parent or the child, Social Security can and does re-review cases frequently. Anyone who's receiving Social Security benefits will know what I'm talking about. You get a letter every two or three years. It's called a continuing disability review. And that letter will say, you know, we're reviewing your case. Send us all your updated medical records. Tell us if you're working, fill out these new functional reports. And so the thing is, if you get approved, you have to know what to do if you get denied, how to appeal, but you also have to know what to do if you get approved because you can't just stop getting medical treatment. You can't stop your record keeping. You have to be prepared for those continuing disability reviews because you effectively have to re-justify every couple of years why you should still be getting those benefits. And if you weren't prepared for that, if you got approved and you thought, hooray, I'm approved, I don't have to do this anymore, and you just stopped thinking about it, you're going to be in for a rude awakening two or three years from now when Social Security says, send us all of your updated records you might not be prepared for that and they will just boot you off of those benefits. So, you know, if you, you're going through all this effort and working really hard to get those benefits and you really need those benefits if you have, if you're a disabled parent or you have a disabled child or both. So know how the system works even after you've been approved because social security will not stop their goal of attrition at that point. They're not going to give up on trying to kick you out of the system just because they felt like they had no choice but to approve you. They will continue trying every couple years to go back and deny your benefits. It definitely happens. I wrote decisions for people who had been re-reviewed and were having to then appeal that case. And Sometimes the judge said, okay, well, well, we'll find that they're still disabled. But I wrote a lot of decisions for judges who said, I don't think they've showed us enough evidence to prove why they should continue to get these benefits. So denied. Benefits over. Oh my gosh, I'm exhausted already from all these rude awakenings. But that's such a good reminder uh, to always be educated and to be on top of things if you can and to be a step ahead in the process because it's not set up for you. And the thing to remember, I do want to leave here on a positive note because the subtitle of my book, Social Security Disability Revealed, the subtitle is Why It's So Hard to Access Benefits. That's all the things that we've been talking about so far. But the second half of that subtitle is and what you can do about it. Because the thing is, Social Security, they do pay a decent amount of claims. You're probably not going to get approved at the initial level, just statistically. But once you get to the hearing level, which is where I worked, those judges do pay a decent amount of claims. And there are some judges that pay 80% of claims. We call those high payers. And there are some judges who are low payers and maybe they're only paying 20% of claims. And as you can imagine, those judges tend to be young and fit and usually they're former military. 
And their attitude is usually like, ah, they look like they can work to me. Ah, I can work. Why can't they? And even with child cases, their attitude will be like, I don't know. This kid seems fine to me. And it can be really hard to convince that judge to approve a claim. And yet... They a tw- even a 20% payer is still paying one out of every five claims. And the important thing to understand is how to be that one out of five so that it doesn't matter who your judge is. If you know the system, if you know what kind of evidence you need, if we're talking genetic conditions, you have to know not only what kind of genetic like blood testing you need, but also there's lots of other testing like with Connective tissue disorders like Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, some of those conditions are diagnosed with a physical exam, right? By looking at mobility. And and so you want to know what kind of blood tests you need, but what other kind of physical exams you need, what kind of specialists you need to see, what kind of medical opinions you need to get from those sources. Having a doctor say, my patient has a connective tissue disorder, it's genetic, that's maybe true, but it's not going to get you social security disability benefits for the child because it doesn't explain how that child is functionally limited compared to an unimpaired child, right? You have to know what social security standards are and what they're looking for. But if you do, now you know where to focus your efforts and you know what kind of medical record to to present. You're not, in other words, you're no longer a passive participant in this process where you're signing a form and letting Social Security go get records from your doctors and crossing your fingers and hoping. You're taking an active role in developing that medical record. And it's not like you're lying. You're not getting those doctors to put anything in that record that's untrue. You're just guiding what they're putting in there. You're telling people, hey, doctor, I need you to specifically talk about functioning. Here are the six domains of childhood functioning that Social Security looks at. I need you to specifically talk about those in your medical reports because that's what I need to provide to Social Security. And if you know how to do that and you know what needs to go in those records, when you present that to Social Security, that's the kind of medical record that even that low paying judge looks at and says, wow, this is really good. This is exactly what I need to pay this claim. I don't really see any room for me to use my discretion to deny it. So I'll pay this claim and then I'll use my discretion to deny the next four that are less well-developed. And that's literally how they make their decisions. A lot of judges will think, I have a lot of discretion until I see a record that is so clearly well-developed and meets the definition under the law that I feel like I have no discretion here. I'm not going to lose my job over this by trying to deny a claim that I can't legally with a straight face deny. So I'll approve that one and I'll move on and I'll think about denying some other ones that are less well-developed. So becoming your own subject matter expert right? Like we're the experts in our kids' health, in our own health, and really kind of bringing the backing. Yeah. In the same way that you you kind of have to become a medical expert when it comes to genetic conditions, you kind of have to become a medical expert when it comes, or a, a legal expert when it comes to the social security regulations. And that's how you give yourself the best chance of success is knowing the system inside now, now not just the medical system, but also the legal system around these public benefits so that you can know what medical story to tell to the judge to meet the legal definition of disability so that you can get those benefits and keep those benefits until the child's 18, at which point, of course, we've talked about how the standard changes and you'll still need medical records at that point, but now you have to prove something different. You, you're not proving functioning, you're proving whether they could work. But throughout their childhood, this from zero to 17, it's all about their functioning and those six functional domains for children. And it's not a secret. The law is not a secret. You can look at the law, the social security rulings and know this is what the judge is going to compare my child's functioning to. These are all the things the judge wants to see in our medical records. So these are the things that I need to get my counselors, therapists, physicians, 
whoever to talk about. And that's how we give ourselves the best possible chance of a successful claim. Put it on my tab, Spencer, attorney at law, Effie Parks. Oh my gosh, there's so much to do. I know that in writing this book, you're you're clearly exposing how disjointed and broken the system is, but you're educating all of us. And you're also playing a part in making it better. And I really always appreciate someone who's doing something like that because a fire was lit from your experience. So thank you for contributing and for writing this book. There's so much that we can talk about, obviously, that pertains to so many aspects of our lives as caregivers and patients. So go buy the book. Spencer, tell them where they can find you and how they can contact you and buy your book. Sure. The book is called Social Security Disability Revealed, why it's so hard to access benefits and what you can do about it. And all of the places that you can buy the book, there are links to everything at our website, which is bishinspublishing.com, B-I-S-H-I-N-S publishing.com. You can also just Google the title and it'll take you straight to Amazon where it's available in both ebook and paperback format. It's also Barnes and Noble, Apple eBooks. You can get it at bookshop.org if you want to support a local bookstore, or you can ask your local library. There's also links to our social media on our website, bishonspublishing.com. But if you want to go straight there at Facebook and Instagram, we're at Bishons Publishing. That's too long for Twitter. So at Twitter, we're at Bishons Pub. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Well, thanks so much for spending so much time talking to us about this complicated and very frustrating issue that we're all going to be dealing with. So I appreciate your time today, Spencer. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate y'all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you. Ha 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 ha!